Welcome back to Partnerships Unraveled, the podcast where we unravel the mysteries of partnerships and channel on a weekly basis. My name is Rick van der Bos, and I'm the CEO and founder at Chenext, and I'm here together with Alex Whitford, VP Partners at Chenext. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm feeling stylish today. We're both wearing our uh, Chanext uh, merch uh, designed by uh, one of our talented producers, Quan. So everyone should go onto the YouTube channel to absolutely check out uh, how good we look today. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And luckily, Juan is here in the room, so he's probably happy to hear this. Yeah, so. or, well, knowing Juan, he hates compliments, so he's absolutely furious about it, but yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So for today, we're actually in our second episode of the six-part series about building a channel from scratch where we dive into the fundamentals of building a channel. Last week, we already had a good look at uh, what are the fundamentals actually and why is that so important. And today we're going to dive into the first fundamental, which is the channel strategy. So maybe for our listeners who haven't listened to the podcast last week or a quick reminder, what is channel strategy and why is it so important? Yeah, I think the channel strategy can be summed up as to why you are building your channel. That's the outcome that you are trying to deliver, not necessarily within the first 30, 60, 90, but the long-term goal. And and for some, that will be to enter a new market. To some, that will be to launch a new product. To some, that will be more sustainable growth. But there is a, a there should be a deciding factor as to why you are building the channel. What's the problem that you are trying to solve internally what's the outcome that you are trying to deliver intrinsically for your own business so whenever i do consultancy that's my opening question and if there isn't absolute clarity around why someone wants to build a channel then that's absolutely the first workshop we do to get really to dive in on the absolute pain that we want to solve and then we can hang everything off the back of delivering that goal yeah so you keep pushing on that strategy until you think okay this is it and only then you start building the rest of the fundamentals yeah, I think a lot of people will be like, oh, I want to build a channel because, you know, VCs are saying it's a good strategy. Well, that's a terrible reason to do it, right? We we want to be solving a very, very specific problem because while channels have the ability to scale incredibly wide, what that, that comes from solving a problem first, right? So, you know, if you're IBM and, and their famous uh, strategy in the 90s was to put a laptop into every hand, well, yeah, you're going to have to scale a massive channel to be able to facilitate that level of business. But you're architecting back from, we're putting a laptop in every hand, right? It's working back from that problem, as opposed to some people who just want to enter EMEA because they've got a really good direct go-to-market model in the US and now they need to build a channel for EMEA. Okay, then we can architect our strategy around that problem, but we really, really have to have absolute clarity on what we are trying to solve for. Yeah, so before you can actually dive into your channel strategy, you need to be super clear on your company strategy. Example you just gave with a laptop in every hand is a very good one because then immediately you know that it's simply impossible to do with the direct sales force. Uh, because if you want to go that wide, like in so many different regions, in so many different verticals, in so many different geographies, that's really when you need a very scalable and efficient go-to-market model, which is the channel, right? Yeah, exactly. And then for every other go-to-market motion, the fundamentals, the four other that we're going to cover in the series, you can understand how that affects your architecture, your pricing model, your data in, and your tooling, your resources to be able to drive that. But it all hangs off the, okay, we need to build a channel that's as wide and scalable as possible. Whereas other channels will be very focused, very deep, very, uh, very built around the certain segment that they are trying to deliver against. But the absolute priority, number one, 
is to decide on why you're building the channel and two, to ensure that everyone or all the key stakeholders within your business are bought into that strategy. Where I see channel strategy break down is someone decides, you know, head of channels decides, right, channels the way we're going to crack EMEA. But then the direct team have a different idea about how they're going to tackle EMEA. Suddenly we're double resourcing. Suddenly there's competition unnecessarily. Suddenly the market's confused about which way you're headed. Whereas if you've got everyone bought into the strategy, you understand, right, this is what we're trying to deliver. And ultimately then we can get into how are we going to deliver that. So if we break those company objectives down a little bit, you first need your long-term mission. So let's take the IBM example there, a laptop in everyone's hand. That's what you want to achieve long-term. Then you break that down back to, let's say, three to five year plan. So what do we want to achieve in the mid-long-term range? And then also what do we want to achieve in the upcoming year to two years? Like I think you need extreme clarity on that with your leadership team with the full company. And as soon as you have that, then you can start reverse engineering your channel strategy. Yeah, exactly. Start with the goal and then we can sort of like building blocks, right? You lay your foundation as to ultimately what you're trying to build for. But if you're trying to build a a small house or a massive pyramid, right, your foundation looks wildly different. So you have to have an idea of what the end goal is in mind. And then like building blocks, right, you can start to assemble from that position, which I think then flows into the next area of channel strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think indeed, if you have a clear view on that, then and that's a little bit inside out, right, where you look at, okay, what do we want to achieve? What's our long-term mission? But then you start looking outside in where it's, okay, what value do we bring to the end user? Because that's the only way you can achieve certain long-term goals. So the, then the end user comes to mind. That's the second step, I think. Yeah, 100%. I We talk a lot about planning. And to me, the best plans start bottom up and top down. So you've got an idea. Top down is you. What's our strategy to the market? But then bottom up is who are the customers that we are ultimately going to be delivering? And the channel is the mechanism to get there. So, you know, IBM, right, they've got to scale far and wide, right? Then we've got to build the channel that allows us to get in contact with every consumer and every business in the world, right? We work back from that and then we can hang our channel strategy off that. But you're absolutely right. We decide who our end users are. You know, what vertical, what segment, what product are they buying? What languages are they buying? Where are they buying from? All of that piece, we really, really get very, very specific on who our ICP is because then we can start to work backwards to us to work out, okay, what is the channel need to look like to satisfy that type of customer at the right volume in the right time frame? Yeah, so so for example, let's say working backwards from that mission to five year, we have a two-year uh, a revenue goal so we know that we want to hit x amount of revenue growth then we need to look okay what is then the dynamics between channel and direct sales there or, or no sorry i'm actually going one step too far once you've know where do we want to get in terms of revenue then you have to look at how many end users do we have to sell to to get to that revenue level or to get to that amount of growth and then indeed try to segment them very properly. So what verticals, what geographies, etc. And if you have that very clear, then you can start thinking around, okay, how do we construct our channel around that? Yeah, exactly. So the, you know, to give you an example, you're a big US business, you sell to finance, but you sell directly in the US because it's all one language or one tax, you've got the relationships. Excellent. Now you want to land in Europe. 
Okay, we're going to build a channel because that's going to be a little bit more complicated. We are targeting banks in Europe over this size. We know that our product works because we sell that product in the US and we know there's a tight story there. But we're building a channel to get us in and sell effectively to those types of end users. That's really clear because you understand very clearly that there is a desire there from the customer. There's product market fit. You have a fairly clear idea on what the revenue opportunity and probably what your closure rates look like. And suddenly you've got a very, very dynamic plan. We're building a channel to give us access to the customers and to sell into banks within Europe. And then we can start to hang off. That's your foundational point. And we can start to work backwards from there to ensure that we've got the channel to facilitate those types of deals. Yeah. Maybe to give an example from what I hear a lot from VCs I'm talking to that want their, indeed their uh, uh, portfolio companies to also focus more and more on the channel what they see almost unanimously is that cracking EMEA or APEC is almost impossible without the channel because you have so many different regions different languages different currencies different regulations so for example if you build the full plan so you know okay we want to grow our revenue 10x in the upcoming three years and you work backwards from there uh, uh, 40% needs to come from the US market. Oh, well, there we're actually doing very well at the moment with direct. So maybe we stay a bit more direct focused there. But we know that actually 60% of that revenue needs to come from EMEA and APEC, where we know we would have to do very significant investments to do it directly and only hope it works. So there the channel comes to comes to play. And I think if you then need to have very clear company objectives, and then also in terms of how are we then going, like the end user base, what does that need to look like? That's how you can reconstruct your plan as follows. Yeah, I, uh, it's a great point, right? Because if we just take uh, American banks versus European banks, while the largest banks in the world are all American banks, the number of European banks that there are are far more because one American bank can service the whole of the US, whereas a Spanish bank isn't going to service France and a French bank isn't going to service Germany. So there's just a higher volume, even if the value is not as big, of the Dutch banks here don't have any uh, any footprint in the UK, as a good example. And so what that means is the necessity to acquire those customers, you need a much deeper channel. So you're absolutely right. One of the key blueprints that we see time and time again is to hit LATAM, APAC, and, um, and Europe or EMEA, you need the ability to build a channel to get those relationships, to manage finances, to manage legal, to manage tax, all of those complexities. The channel is really, really powerful there. But what's great about that is it's a very, very precise channel strategy. And fundamentally, if you've got a precise channel strategy, it's much easier to execute continuously and successfully. Yeah, fully on board there. Uh, and I think indeed then when you have your company objective in place and then also very much clarity, a lot of clarity on what end users do we need and how many of them do we need, then you can start thinking about your sales approach, right? Look, okay, if we work with partners for those specific geographies or specific verticals, how are we going to market with partners? Any advice there on like what kind of things you could be thinking of? Yeah, 100%. So one of the things that I see very often is they put the cart before the horse, as we would say in English, which is they go, oh, this partner has a relationship with HSBC. So we're going to sign this partner and then we're going to go. To me, you actually want to stop that and first decide, okay, how are we going to continuously and con successfully 
break into these customers. So what is the sales approach? What do we integrate with? What are we continually being sold into? Where is our value maximum? And so to continue the example, if you're a US company selling into finance, you will understand where your product is working well and what else it plays into. So if it plays well into a financial CRM tool, for the sake of argument, then you know okay, that's where our product integrates. That's where it's really tight. And so we want to find partners that are already selling that CRM tool that we can then have an attachment play. And our continuous process is to find the partners that sell into finance, who sell this tool and are willing to attach us into that sale because that's a very, very slick and efficient mechanism to continually have value towards the partner and towards the end user. And suddenly, before talking about any partners in specific, you've got an agnostic sales approach that you then can drive down into a further level into building out a partner profile. The thought process there is that those partners are already selling to those accounts. They are also already having a good relationship with another vendor. And then you're really going to look, how can I most optimally fit into that relationship with the vendor, which indeed first requires an integration with that product. But then secondly, a joint value proposition that makes it very easy for that partner. And I think that's what you call the attached sale, right? When it's just, oh, I'm already selling this, but I know with like very little effort, I can also include this product and get better joint value proposition, more margin and more services on top of it. Yeah, so the the three uh, attached sale is absolutely right. The two other main ones that you see is the replacement, which is, right, our product is better than our competitors, so we are going to teach the partner why our product is better than our competitors and then switch out, and that's competitive displacement or the replace sale. Or the third is the ecosystem sale, which is, while it doesn't necessarily integrate, these are often bought together by the same bank and they are often sold by the same partner. So it doesn't necessarily tessellate perfectly, but we very much see a continual drip feeding of that, those types of technology. So a very, you know, a very normal one will be laptops are sold and meeting room screens are sold, right? Those are all sold by IT partners. That's just sort of consistent fulfillment. So they're in that same ecosystem. And those are the sort of three pillars that I would start with. Pick one first, and then you may decide that, oh, we can do all of them. But pick one first, get super specific. It's going to be easier to measure and drive success that way. And then you go one layer deeper to find the partners who will best support your sales strategy. And and for example, with the replacement sale there, it could maybe be very wise to, let's say you already have some traction direct and you're going to build up your channel program. Maybe your direct team had like a competitor attack campaign where they very precisely said, what competitor are we replacing? And then you can do the same analysis with within the partner landscape. So look, what is the actual revenue of that competitor within the full channel? And how can we indeed, like, if you, you're very sure that you're better and that you can also convince the partners and their end users of it, really help them with, like, why is it valuable for your end user to say, hey, get out, this solution goes out and our solution goes in? Yeah, and what's so important about that is you've got to build the joint value proposition towards the partner and towards the end user. And those are two separate plans right so you can have it and i see this time and time again you can have an amazingly better product and end users will agree that your product is better than the other product but unless the partner also has a a beneficial value to switching out that product they won't sell it right so you've got to build the value into why is it good for the partner and why is it good for the end user but then competitive displacement if you've got that built right is one of the most continuous and effective sales strategies i see Because partners get very good at the exact same messaging. 
oh, this product is better than that product. Here's why we see. Here's other customers that have bought it. We know it works much better. And yes, the incentive is there for the partner to also make that sale. Suddenly, they're able to drive that messaging in at scale, in this case, to all the banks that they deal with. Yeah, 100%. I, I was just thinking maybe to clarify for our listeners as well. The real reason why you want one of those three sales approaches is that it's very hard to actually help partners to sell to new customers. That's what all partners are struggling with. They love to get help from the, with that from their vendors, but it's really hard, especially if you're just starting out. And with these three approaches, you're actually going to help your partners do more business with their current uh, uh, with their current or more margin if it's the replacement uh, uh, sale with their current customer base, right? Because you have to attach sale, there you're going to help them towards where they're already selling to make it easier to sell a product on top of that. You can have the replacement sale where you're going to show them either this brings a lot more value to your end user or you can get more margin or more services on top. Or you have the ecosystem play where you say, hey, you're already selling this and we're actually in that same area where you help them as such. And I think therefore you can make a lot more traction in the beginning of building your channel because you integrate in the ex- actual way of working that the partner is already doing. Yeah, and if you're really talking about net new customer acquisition, to me that's a reason not to build a channel, right? Because the, the best people to acquire net new customers are the vendor, right? It's much easier to acquire a net new customer direct because you don't need to train anyone to do it. You know, the best people at selling, I don't know, Logitech are Logitech, right? They specialize in it. They do it every single day. Um, and so, you know, they're very focused on that. If you want to acquire net new customers to the partner, I just think you're better off going direct. One of the key reasons to build a channel, they already have the access. They already have the relationships. And so you acquire one partner and hopefully acquire lots of end users as a, as a reason, as opposed to acquiring a partner and then that partner having to acquire net new end users. It's, it's just a lot more work unnecessarily. So absolutely build your program in the most effective way to give you access to the existing customer base. Yeah, I think indeed the only place where I see that working is with the very large vendors who spend a lot of market development funds on those partners where they are required to do net new business with that market development fund. But outside of that, it's very hard to, and, to, to do that. But even those vendors, that wasn't the start of their channel strategy, right? When they first built their channel, they're incubating it for the first you know, three to five years, they've gone and they've got the existing partner base, right? The existing partners with their existing customer base, and they've got into that motion. When you're at the infancy, you're looking for the easiest, quickest wins you can get, and that's just with the existing access. And by the way, if you've not, if you're landing in Europe, right, and this is the first time you're doing, that means there's loads of potential there. Once you start to hit saturation, that's when you need to start thinking. Okay, now it's time for the part now to acquire new end users but until you're at that saturation point, go for the easiest win you can. And the great thing about the channel, because it's a very wide pyramid. There's lots of low-hanging fruit. There's not a little bit. Yeah, and it really helps you to build successful cases with those partners, which c- creates enthusiasm with other partners, and that's really where you want to s- the snowball effect to start. Uh, I think we touched upon quite some interesting things around the, the company objectives, but also how to ingrain the rest of the channel strategy within that, But and, and especially when looking at the end user and the sales approach. I think if you have those things in place, then it's time to think around the, the ideal partner profile, right? Because that's you want to make it repeatable and when you hire more channel reps as well that you actually help them to recruit the right type of partner again. What is an, like What does a good ideal partner profile look like to you? To me, uh, evidence of a very successful channel 
is a very specific definition of an IPP. So when you're at your infancy, you're going to make a guess roughly at what that IPP is based on. And it's going to be based on, you know, what end users do they sell to? Do they have the, if we're doing the attachment cell to the, use the argument they use, are they selling the other products for that attachment cell? Are they the right customer size? Do they have the right amount of salespeople? Do they have the right marketing team? But the more specific you make that IPP, the more targeted you can be in terms of your partner recruitment. And right at the beginning, when you're talking about building a channel from scratch, you want it to be as lean and effective as possible because any partner recruited that doesn't generate revenue is an absolute death knell for your productivity and your efficiency. So if you can hit your targets by recruiting three partners and making those three partners successful, that's the way you want to do it. But that means you need to get super specific with your definition that's going to lead right into your sales strategy, that's going to lead right into your end users, that's going to lead right into your into your channel strategy, right? It should all be super, super tight. So you can have multiple ideal partner profiles, right? Over time, you can have an AV partner and a GSI partner and an IT partner and all of those different sort of constructions. But when you're starting out, pick one, make it very, very specific, and then arm your team with that definition so they know, oh, there's 20 available partners that fit that profile in the UK. We're going to pick three, go after three. We're going to do the same thing in France, same thing in Germany, same thing in Spain, so that we know we are going to be successful. Yeah, and I think there's a couple of ways, if you don't really know where to start, how to shortcut that as well. I think one of them is ask the end user. So we've been speaking about that earlier already, where it's just call them and do some research. Like, don't try to sell them anything yet. Let's say you're indeed researching the, the UK market. Start calling your, your desired customers and ask them, like, via which partners are you... Hey, I'm doing some research and, and very curious, via which partners are you actually buying these type of products? I, I love that because what you're talking about there is, one, cheating, which I'm, I'm the biggest fan of getting the easiest way to get the answer as possible. And the end users have it. But the other thing is... You're asking the end user based on your sales strategy. So what are you? What partners are selling you these types of solutions that we want to integrate with, right? That's the, that's the real benefit of that strategy. The end user gives you the answer and you can tie it very specifically into your sales approach, which is going to give you a very critical list of who your IPP should be. Yeah, it can really help you move forward there. And, and indeed, the second thing I was also thinking about was look at your competitors. Like everyone has like dealer locators and things like that or partner overview on their website. Look who they are already working with and, and see if there's interesting interesting partners among them. And that can help you. I think that the best way to start is with the end user because then you know where they bring most value because your desired end user is working with them. But then also with, with looking at your competitor partner pages and combining that you can start looking, okay, are there certain demographics that we can extrapolate to skill or search for new partners as well, which indeed are some of the things you mentioned, uh, company size of that partner, what verticals are they specialized in, what the what does the distribution of their co- uh, company or their employee base look like, and and that can really help you to to bring make it more specific when you grow. Yeah, and what's really important, and when you start recruiting partners and starting speaking to partners, right, because that's part of building out your IPP, like you say, you you build a hit list of twenty partners. If you speak to a partner and they're super excited, that's great. But if through speaking to them, you realize, hang on, they don't really fit my IP. They're super interested in working with us, but actually they don't sell the attachment product that we're trying to sell in. Don't work with them. 
because absolutely the thing that slows you down and causes you to miss target early is putting time into partners that you don't, that there is a high risk that they won't be successful. So if you're building your entire channel strategy around accessing banks in Europe with attachment sell, and so our partner needs to sell in Europe to banks with these other ecosystems or attachment products, and suddenly they don't have the attachment product, doesn't matter how interested they are with working, you have to start with your highest opportunities. And that's having a really, really tight definition on IPP because what's so important about the efficiency of this is the learnings that you have with your IPP, you can then cookie cutter and drive that into other territories, into new hires, or into other cust- into other partners that fit that definition. If suddenly you start running left because, you know, a partner's put their hand up and says they're super interested, you're not learning anything for that that you can then scale to other regions. And the whole point of channel is the learnings that you have in the UK will be replicatable in France, in Germany, in, in China, right? Because the IPP should be pretty much, while all territories think they're a little bit special, the IPP is fairly continuous across the whole world, meaning that, oh, okay, a company of this size with, that does this much revenue with this makeup that sells these products into these verticals, we're having loads of success with, great. Well, I promise you, if that IPP definition works in the UK, it's going to work in Germany. Yeah, this is spot on. And I think we can also really learn something from direct sales there, where you don't want to recruit customers that are not in your ideal customer profile, because otherwise you will get like churn and no upsells, etc. The same is with partnerships. Like if you want to build a long lasting and successful partnership, the stricter you are in getting the right partners in, the more successful those partnerships will be long term. And that will help your word of mouth as well with partners being very happy working with you. So it really has this like positive a cycle there and when you when you leverage it like that yeah i i know when i go and speak to enterprise sales teams how well they're doing by when i get them to map out what their icp is and when they're talking about buying personas and timelines and what the value is for the marketing person versus the it manager versus then suddenly i'm like well these people have such a specific dash definition on what icp is they are successful because it's tested and true the same has to be do- true of your ideal partner profile, right? Which is we know exactly the type of partner that we work with that will be successful. And you've got to test that hypothesis, make it work with a few that fit the definition. And then you know very clearly, okay, it's worked with five or six of the IPP, meaning if we made it 50 or 60, we're very confident that all of those will be successful because we've had a 100% hit rate with the five or six that we've worked with so far. Yeah, I hope we inspired the listeners a bit to uh, create a one pager. I think they can actually do that with the four topics we discussed today. So try to write it all on one page. Like what are the company objectives, long-term, mid-term and short-term? What end users are we going to sell to? And and how many do we need to sell to to achieve the company objectives there? What is our sales approach? Or are we going to do attach? Will it be a replacement or an ecosystem sell? And finally, work on that ideal partner profile, which if you use the three first ones, that will really tie into bringing you to the right ideal partner profile. Thanks again for sharing today, uh, Alex. Uh, I would like to point our listeners to our description as well, because we are sharing more of a summary there and and redirecting to other assets as well. And uh, see you next week.